chapter 28, it's the very last paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew. And this ties into the last announcement. So we have a couple of baptisms this morning. Uh, I want to talk briefly about what, why this isn't some just religious goofy thing that we do. There is a very specific instruction and faith and obedience that's wrapped into this. Last week, as we were talking about being anxious and not having anxiety, not worrying about our life, this whole idea of having little faith is what breeds worry and anxiety in us. So I mentioned this verse, uh, verse 17 of Matthew 28. They see Jesus resurrected. They're worshiping him. But this whole idea of some doubting. I'll point that out again right now. Just this whole idea. I don't know where you are in your faith relationship with Jesus. I hope you just, you're in this position where you're hungry. Like you want to know more. You have questions. You have lack of understanding. But the more you get to know him, the more the doubt is cast away to the wayside. Man, I used to get saved every week at church. I'd pray that confessional every single week. God help me. God save me. God forgive me. God cleanse me. God fill me. Um, I struggled with doubt because I was looking at my own behavior in those early days and didn't have my eyes on Christ. And there's, there's been so many events in my life. I have zero doubt in regards to who God is, regards to who he is to me, in regards to his word and his promises. Yeah, I've got questions, but when it comes to him, no doubt whatsoever. And that's not this just, that's what I'm supposed to say in church. I've experienced him in so many different ways in my life that it's impossible for me to still have doubt. And it's an awesome position to be in as a believer, but I know that all of you aren't in that position. That's what this verse gets to, this command that every single congregation has the exact same mission statement because it comes from Jesus. And he says, Jesus came and spoke to them, some worshiping, some doubting, struggling. Here's what he says before he ascends to heaven. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore. So as believers, every single one of us has this command to go out, to travel. It could be traveling to the bedroom next door to you. It could be traveling to a neighbor. It could be traveling halfway around the world. Go therefore and make disciples. This is this whole idea. Cause others to be followers of Jesus Christ. That's the idea of making disciples. You can't put anybody in a headlock and force them to love God. But those who are curious, those who are questioning the meaning of life, why am I here? That conviction of sin and struggling with self, this is this whole idea of making disciples, going into the public sphere, into the private sphere, making disciples of all peoples. Doesn't matter white, black, Asian, what country, what nationality, None of that matters. All peoples. We go to all peoples and make disciples of them. And then we get this instruction of baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing individuals in the name of the triune God. And this idea of baptism, it's, it's this washing, it's, it's water, it's immersion, it's part of the culture of Jesus' day. It has some historical context in the Old Testament. But we're going to go into Romans in just a second and read this, this, what it's to image for us as we are going through this purifying act of obedience. So we're commanded to baptize those who are disciples in the name of the Trinity. We are commanded by Jesus to teach. 
What I'm doing here every single Sunday after Sunday, I'm only trying to teach this document. This is it. Because we're to teach one another to observe, to keep, to watch, to do through faith everything that Jesus has commanded us. He says, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And every single one of us and corporately, we get to sit in this promise. I am with you always. He's dwelling within me. He's dwelling within you through faith. He is present in this room. He sees. He knows. Again, this isn't, this isn't some religious game that we do. So turn to Romans quickly, Romans chapter 6. And Paul gives us an awesome teaching in regards to when the gospel comes into your life. When you start, you have that moment where Jesus is introducing himself to you through messages, through other people. I can remember this life experience myself. Remember being, you know, hanging out with John and Peggy, going to church with them and Julie and being exposed to these things. Giving my life to Christ on a particular day in 1999. It was a year later. I, could, I was sitting in the back row of a congregation in Salt Lake, Capitol Church in the city. I was going to a new believers class in the morning. This is an Assemblies of God church, so they have a raucous, loud, hour-long worship every single Sunday. It was an hour-long teaching. The guy, the guy that was the pastor at that time, he was one of the translators of uh, the New Living Translation for 1 Corinthians. Like, I was, I was in an awesome congregation. But I'm expressing that to tell you, I remember the day of my baptism. I remember it's, it was in April, stinking cold outside in Utah. I'm in my baggy pants and my earrings, and I'm in the back, and I knew baptisms were that day. And I'm, no, Lord. I don't, just, I don't like attention. I tell you that all the time. I'm not, I don't want to be the center of attention. I don't like people looking at me. I didn't want to say anything. But I was listening to the Holy Spirit, just that conviction of calling me to be obedient to him. That's a, that's a memorial stone in my life, an event where there was a transition in my life through responding to Jesus obediently through faith on the day of my baptism. And I have other monuments along this journey with him that have become very important and very central in my relationship with him where, like I said, I can't deny who he is. But here's Paul expressing it. So once we come to Christ... What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly no. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? So this is this imagery. When we are being baptized, this, this immersion we are being, it's this identification with his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. The old man dead and buried, as we come up out of that water, that just that imagery of living this new life in the resurrection power of Christ. And it's awesome. Verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died 
has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we, also, we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members, your, your body members, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You can turn to Matthew chapter 7. I pause and I teach on that this morning, not just for instruction on what we're going to do after today's service with baptisms. But I want to also, I, I pause there, one, to give everybody this invitation. I've done it a couple times in announcements, but I want you to know and be aware that for some people, this, this baptism event, this would be like a first time. I've, I've just been saved. I've just heard about what it means to have faith in Christ and obedience to Christ. And this, this is an act of obedience for the first time. For many of us, we've been baptized multiple times. I was 13 years old when I was sprinkle baptized in the Presbyterian church. And I don't remember anything that I learned. I know why we were going to the church. I, know, I remember sitting in the class, but I don't remember learning anything about Christ. And from 13 to, well, I was 23 when I got saved, that 10 years of my life, you know, I was totally living in sin. That identification of baptism had no, had no impact in my life. And I can look back and I can see all the preserving acts of God in my life for sure. Um, but there was an act of obedience for me that day of water baptism. But it's not something that I've had to repeat over and over. Even though I struggled and had doubts and struggling with my sin, I confess those sins to the Lord, and he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness, all of my unrighteousness. It's an awesome relationship. But I'm pausing on this this morning. If this is, uh, you've already been baptized in the past, it wasn't real, it was real in that moment, and you lived a period of time with the Lord, and then you've lived an extended period of time in your sin, in your rebellion. I rebaptize people all the time because it's, it's this marker of identification. I know that I've lived in rebellion, and I don't want to be, and I'm not that person anymore. I am new and alive in Christ. This becomes just this memorial stone in your own soul. We get to celebrate you as the body of Christ. But this isn't something. We're not baptizing you into a church. We're not baptizing you into a doctrine. Do you know how many people are going to be baptized today in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I don't have a clue, but they're being baptized into him not into a congregation. And we at the church get to celebrate with that that's occurring throughout this world today. It's awesome. But as I go throughout the message today, the invitation is to everybody. If the Holy Spirit is picking at your heart where you know that this is an act of faithful obedience and this is something that you've said no to the Lord in, I'm inviting you. I'm sitting on top of the baptismal right now. At the end of service, we're going to lift the lids off. We have a couple that are for sure going to be baptized today, but I want to give you that invitation. It's important for you. 
It's important for your relationship with the Lord. It's important for us as a community to celebrate you with you, to love on you, to encourage you to grow in that relationship. So I pause because I want you to know who Jesus is. And I want you to be his disciple, his follower, his learner, all attention on him. What's he commanded you to do? Do you know what his commands are? There's a lot of them in here. And it's awesome to discover that relationship with him over time. Another point in pausing of that is the church gets in all kinds of critical fights about baptism. Do you only sprinkle? Do you pour some water over the head? Do you have to be fully immersed? Can it be in a tub? Does it have to be in moving water? Is Lake Lanier all right? Is a creek all right? Is a swimming pool all right? People get in fights, and not just people, believers in Christ get in all kinds of critical, judgmental fights that destroy relationship and that destroy the image of what Christ has commanded us to do, which is to live out a life of love and obedience for him. So that final point is what gets us into this morning's message. The sermon title is to see clearly because that's the emphasis of Jesus' teaching. But we're jumping into this final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus' command to us is judge not that you be not judge. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, literally the measure you measure out, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck, the irrelevant speck in your brother's eye, and do not consider the plank, the beam, the log in your own eye? This is, this is hyperbole. This should make you giggle, um, you know, because Jesus is, you know, you're paying attention to this little thing when you got this big old honking thing in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye, hypocrite. And this idea for hypocrite, remember, as we've been traveling through this sermon, it's the whole idea of being on a stage. It's being an actor. And Jesus, in using this hyperbole and using this example of your, your neighbor, he's got a little speck of dirt in his eye. There's something off and you're being hypercritical about. And you're not paying attention to the big old beam that you're swinging around as you're looking at everybody. He's saying, hypocrite, get off the stage, man. Quit being so self-righteous and so critical and so judgmental in your own heart. That's why he says this word hypocrite. So it's not this stern finger pointing in the chest. It's, it's to capture our attention. Then he says, first, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly, thoroughly, to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces." I've got some, uh, these are lexicon definitions for what the word judge means. This is very common in our culture. When you are critiquing somebody else's behavior, you're critiquing the culture's behavior, you're critiquing another believer's behavior, what is often a response? Don't judge me, man. Jesus tells you not to judge me, don't you, right? It's this, it's this 
easy response to get your eyes off of me and get uh, your eyes back on somebody else so that I don't have to deal with any sin going on in my life. All right, here's what the word is, this, this word for judge in the Greek. It's krino. In its foundational definition, it means to set apart so as to distinguish. Then by transference, here's six definitions. It says it's to make a selection, which would be translated as to select or to prefer. The gloss that has the interpretation here is the second one. It means to pass judgment upon and thereby seek to influence the lives and actions of other people. It's to, be a, it's to judge, to pass judgment upon, to express an opinion about, to pass unfavorable judgment upon, to criticize, find fault with, and condemn. We'll, go, we'll come back to that. Third one says it's to make a judgment based on taking various factors into account. So to think, to consider, to look upon. Fourth one, it's to come to a conclusion after a cognitive process. You've reached a decision. You've decided. You've proposed. You're intending to do something based upon a cognitive process. The fifth one, it's to engage in a judicial process as a judge. You're, you're making a decision. You're being hailed before a court, pronouncing condemnation. The sixth one says it's to ensure justice for someone, to see that justice is done. And here's where a bunch of other words come out is you talk about this word judge, judgment, condemnation. We see it all over the pages of the New Testament. So crino turns into anacrino. It means to, to judicially investigate, to examine, to evaluate. We'll pause on that in a minute. Diacrino means to separate thoroughly, to discriminate, make to differ, to discern, discernment. Epicrino is this whole idea of passing a sentence. Catacrino means to judge against someone, to condemn them. And there's a couple more that we don't need to get into. Here's the, here's the idea with judge. So when Jesus is saying, judge not lest you be judged, he's getting to this hypercritical, uh, judgmental attitude that is very easy for us to have for other people. Simple example. How many of you guys rage at traffic? Come on, show of hands. How many of you just don't like other people in cars? If all of us go get into our independent cars right now and go jump on the 400, what's the speed limit? Whatever you want it to be. And anybody that's not going the speed that you want, what are they? Idiots. It's, it's, it's a very simple example of we all process through this. If you jump on the 400, the speed limit's 55. But if you're going 55 on the 400, you're an idiot. Because you're being dangerous to the flow of traffic around you. Everybody's doing 75. Then there's the idiot that's doing 90. That's me. But I have the horsepower and I need to use it. <laughs> but there's this, there's this very simple example and this very simple attitude that we have about all of these strangers in their own cars going to their own places and 
we always have this perspective, I'm the perfect driver, everybody should be traveling my speed, everybody should be getting out of the lane that I want to be in, and it's very easy to be hypercritical about the other human beings that are around you and judging their behavior. Have you ever been the idiot in the car? And when you're the idiot, it's like, my bad, I'm sorry, didn't mean to, wasn't paying, it's my fault, and then we just go about our life as they're cussing us out for the next two days, telling their coworkers and friends about this idiot that they were driving next to, right? This is the kind of critical attitude that Jesus is getting at. There is a way that we can be very hyper-judgmental towards human beings who are on the outside, who haven't made the choice to bend the knee willingly to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That person who is in that position, there is a totally different conversation with them in regards to morality and behaviors. It's just, it's just a different conversation. They haven't submitted the knee to Jesus. If you are having a conversation with somebody as a believer, and they're often some point there's a conversation to be had, but it ought not to be this we're picking up stones and winging it at other people's heads. Here's another example that I want to take us through. Flip back to Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to, I'm going to give you an example of cherry picking through God's word. To teach something that, and make a point of emphasis that's just according to my perspective, my idea, what I want to teach, what I want to harp on, all right? So Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 3, as he's being baptized, he tells John the Baptist, it's, it's fitting, it's proper, it's right for us to fulfill all righteousness. So therefore, Jesus is telling each one of us, it is right for us to be righteous individuals according to his righteousness, right? Everybody agree? In chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus promises this blessing. Do you, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Like when you look at the worldscape, do you, are you not like starving and parched to see human beings stop being evil and wicked and you want them to live morally and righteously in love with one another and in love with their creator, yes or no? And God gives us the promise, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you're seeking to bring about this righteousness in your own life and the life of others, you're going to be filled. You're going to be satiated. But then he says at the end of this, well, be careful. Because when you go preach righteousness to other people, what's going to happen to you? You're going to, you're going to get persecuted. So those, those beliefs that you have about Jesus and about who he is and about what you believe that he's calling you to in your life and, and preach and the gaps to stand in and the areas that you're serving, um, when, when people are critical towards you and they're pushing it back against you, it's because you're righteous and you're good and you're upright and you're living your life right. And the only reason they're pushing back on you is because they're persecuting you for righteousness sake. And we need to go out into this world and tell them exactly the words that Jesus said in verse 28. I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, you better get your righteousness right. You better live like a Christian and act like a Christian and speak like a Christian. And if you don't, 
Your, your own salvation is questionable. You will not get into the kingdom of heaven if your righteousness doesn't exceed the unrighteous behavior of all the rest of this world. Not only does Jesus say that, but you jump down to the end of chapter 5. He tells you to be perfect and complete and mature just as our Father in heaven is perfect. And if you're not thinking and speaking and living out his righteousness, you're not going to enter into his kingdom. How do you feel right now? You feel judged? You feel picked on? Do you have any like kind of weight emitting senses in there? I just went through the word of God and I just cherry picked red letters. Jesus said every single one of those words. But what I did is I took those words out of the context in which he spoke and I threaded together multiple verses that talked about righteousness and came at, and I, and I can do this a lot heavier and harder, I wouldn't because that would be the only thing that people talked about. And anyway, I'm, I'm checking myself right now. You're welcome. Um, there are so many subject matters as believers, things that we study in the word, things that we hear from other people. There's denominational differences. There's 2,000 years of history in the church and even thousands of years more when we sit in the Old Testament. There's, the, there's these different ideas in our own culture today of what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And when, if somebody doesn't meet your definition, it's very easy to be hypercritical, to be judgmental, to pick up the stone and wing it at somebody else's head. That individual, that ministry, they're not even Christians. They're not even believers. They don't have this right. Now, we have to be cautious in this because there is a time to stand up. There are false teachers in this world. We are going to get into this idea as we get into the rest of this message over the next few weeks. There is a singular gate to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and that is Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus tells us to beware of false teachers, of false prophets. People are going to teach false and unrighteous things. But he tells us in that as we encounter those falsehoods, we sit in this document so that we are enabled and empowered to have clear sight. And this is this emphasis of the clear sight. Jesus is telling, don't you judge, don't you be critical and judgmental towards your brothers and sisters is the, is the emphasis of this. Because as you judge, is that the way that you want God to judge you? Do you want the almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, to judge you according to the way that you critique other people's lives? Yes or no? Do you want God to judge your driving habits based upon how you're judging the driving habits of another? Do you want God to judge you based on how perfect your theology is, how perfect your systematic theology and your doctrine is in regards to the entire word of God? Do you want God picking at every single one of the areas where you're off? I don't know about you, but as a believer in Jesus, I have grown and matured over time in regards to what his word is communicating. When I was a young believer being taught verse by verse, man, I thought I knew it all. And I'm listening to the older guys saying, man, I just feel like I'm, I'm just scratching the surface. And it's like, I don't know what your problem is. I got all this figured out. And then you live life a little bit. And you realize the diversity of opinion. This is why I love like table fellowship Bible studies. 
We get to crack open the word of God together. We get to say, like, here's the main thoughts of what this means and what Jesus is getting at. And then we get to share each other's life experiences. I get corrected by baby believers and mature believers, just helping me, give me understanding over time. I'm continually learning, continually growing, continually being transformed into the image of the almighty God. So this is one of these fingers that I have pointing back to myself and my own soul. I know what it's like to be hyper-judgmental, hypercritical, and right. I became a believer in Salt Lake City, Utah. The Mormons preach another Jesus, clearly. I remember winning the debates and feeling like I'm on a pedestal because I have the truth and they don't. I know what it's like to throw stones and be critical and be corrected in that relationship by God. And that's what he's getting at. As you are engaging with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, do you, ask yourself the question, do you want to be judged with the same standard that you're using? And this is in relationship with God, and this is in relationship with other people. If you are a hypercritical person with your mouth, with your thumbs as we're in social media world, people are going to be hypercritical towards you. What comes around goes around kind of attitudes. But ultimately, what God is getting at, there's this, there's this correction, there's this idea to help us just stand and, oh, wait a minute. Do you not know the standards, the measure, the lines that you are using to measure out your attitude and opinions and expressions about other people? God's telling us and giving us this promise, I will use that same standard for you. And that's where he gets down to this phrase, you hypocrite. Get off the stage, man. You're so worried about how somebody else is living their life for Jesus. Do you know why it's so easy for us to be worried about the speck in somebody else's eye? Because it gets the attention off of me. If I can sit there and join in the reindeer games and complain about this pocket of Christians and that church over there down the road, this is why they're wrong, this is why we're right, it gets my eyes off of me. It allows me to ignore what the word of God is saying to me into my own context, my own relationship with God, my own relationship with other people. Because then I get to be on my pedestal. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Bob. I just had to make sure you're listening, Bob. Do you, do you feel that kind of heart? Have you ever felt that kind of heart within the body of Christ? So this is the idea that Jesus keeps, he's always directing us back to him. He's given us this instruction. So as you sit in the Beatitudes, uh, where we quoted earlier in chapter 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The next three, they're dealing with this attitude of judgment. Blessed are the merciful. If you are a merciful person in relationship, with God, you're going to receive his mercy. You're going to receive mercy from other people when you fall and when you stumble, and there they are to help you. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. You shall see God. What an incredible promise. Nathan prayed that in this, this morning's prayer. Blessed are you who are pure in heart, 
This not only as we gaze at God through his word, but as as we gaze at one another as other human beings. Having pure intentions, pure motives as we discern what's going on in in other people's lives. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's so easy to go into a sphere and be the cause of agitation. I'm really good at it because I'm a smart aleck. I can plop myself into any circumstance and irritate a lot of people with my mouth because I like to have fun. You're welcome. But blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called the sons of God. So the, many of the ideas that Jesus is expressing, you know, earlier on where he's telling us to love our enemies, go the second mile, there's many ideas in this message that he's already communicated this whole idea of not being judgmental. He's very intentional of, in what he is teaching because he's teaching, here's the right character that we ought to have. Here's our identity in him. Here's different behaviors that he's changing and transforming in us. Here's how he's defining the righteous acts that we're to pursue in life. And above everything, seek the kingdom of God. Seek his righteousness. He's now he's putting the pause button on every single one of our souls to make sure that we're not taking his instructions and just throwing them on the shoulders as a burden on everybody else and not seeking to walk out a relationship with him. So deal with your own being. Deal with your own soul. Sit in his word. Meditate on it. Think about it. What is he saying? Why is he saying this? What's he working on in me right now? This is a constant process of transformation over time. Then you will be enabled and empowered to see clearly and to see thoroughly into the lives of your brothers and sisters to help. And this gets into these different definitions of what it means to judge. We can be a judge who sits in the seat of judge and says, here's the law, here's what you did to break it, Here's what the law says to punish you. I condemn you. That's being a judge. And God, again, we are not in God's seat ever. He invites us in, but he and he alone, he is the law giver. And he is the singular judge of human beings. We have very limited perspectives in what's going on in our own minds sometimes. We have very limited perspectives in what's going on in somebody else's life. Yet... You can see good. You can see relationship with Jesus as you observe the life of other people, right? Can you see change and transformation as you walk alongside of other believers over time? I can. I can see backsliding. I can see drifting. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. I listen to what I say. I listen to what other people say. To be an observer, to be a discerner, that's this other major idea of being a judge. It's not to, it's not to detect sin so that I can condemn you. It's to detect sin so that there can be correction. And the correction is all based on relationship. Don't be a hypercritical individual because then people are going to be hypercritical back to you. If you are a hypercritical, unforgiving individual, Jesus already told us in the sermon, if you're unforgiving, your Father in heaven isn't going to forgive you either. Who are you to hold on to somebody else's sins when your sins, when you've been freed from all of your sins? These same ideas keep playing out in this message. But he is inviting us into having a, a quiet, 
meditative relationship with him where we are asking for the Holy Spirit to evaluate and discern and examine what's going on inside of here, maturing, growing, and enabling me, enabling you, enabling us together as we rub shoulders, as we walk in one another's life and we hear something that's off, it's there as a doctor, there as a physician, identifying here's what's wrong, here's why this is off, here's what the word of God says, here's some ideas, here's some tools, here's how we're going to point you to Jesus and walk out this relationship with him in maturity. So here's the medicine that you need to take. That's evaluating, examining. Communion is an awesome picture of this idea. When you come to the Lord through remembering his body and his blood, Examine yourself. Don't come to him in your holiness and in your righteousness. We're coming to him as beggars, realizing he is the almighty God. He's the one that tabernacled in this flesh. He's the one that gave his body for the remission of my sins. God, thank you. He's the one that's given me his newness of life through the power of his resurrection. God, thank you. I want nothing more than every single human being that he's created to know and understand who he is and to be madly in love with him and to see him for all eternity. That's, that's all I want. God, forgive me when I'm this critical jerk. And correct me and chasten me and mature me. Cause me to be gentle and filled with self-control. So on one side of this, there's this, we have this demand of other believers to be righteous in Jesus. We have this demand for other believers to love their neighbors as they love themselves, right? We can make all these demands on one another and have all this external focus and be hypercritical. Jesus has dealt with that. But then there's this other side of the coin where he's also telling us not to be too laxed. So he says here, the, this uh, last verse in verse 6, Don't give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And here's the idea. Jesus isn't talking about your puppies and your dogs that you let lick your face, which is totally gross. Don't let your animals do that. Am I the only one? Nobody. Sorry, my wife is back there shaking her head, telling me to stop. I'm going to get myself in trouble. Um, these are, he's dealing with stray dogs, with wild dogs. Dogs eat blood, right? Dogs are scavengers. They'll come upon prey and, you know, they'll, they'll eat a carcass, all that kind of stuff. So Jesus is referencing wild dogs. Dogs are unclean animals in the nation of Israel. You're not allowed to eat them. But, but here's the imagery. Don't take what is holy. Don't take a sacrificial animal that has been sacrificed to the Lord for sin that's to be burned on the altar, this sacrificial altar. There's different sacrifices, but the main idea, when you put that carcass, you've, you've placed your hand on this animal. This animal has had its throat slit on behalf of your sin being your substitution. The carcass of that animal is now put on the altar and its body is being consumed by fire and the smoke is rising up to God. All of this incredible imagery in regards to what Jesus did for us on the cross. Don't take that offering to the Lord and hand it to the stray dog that wants that meat, that would be lapping up that blood. 
in this environment of pre, you know, this, this temple area, there's not going to be any dogs or animals in this area. It's holy. It's dedicated. Don't give that which is set, set apart, dedicated, devoted to God to those human beings who are identified here as dogs, as beastly. Same thing, this same imagery that he uses with pigs. Don't take a handful of pearls and cast it before pigs. So this, this, this imagery, like pigs are going to eat grain. A pearl looks like a small piece of grain. Pigs aren't going to eat it. What are they going to do? They're just going to stomp on it and mush it into the ground. Jesus is calling human beings dogs and swine. Is he being judgmental? Is he being hypercritical? Is he giving us a teaching that's immediately contradictory to what he just told us in not being judgmental? No. He's telling us to be discerning. Be discerning with your relationships. Be self-aware. This is a prayer Julie and I have prayed often over the years. God, help me to be self-aware. Help me not to be blind to my own issues, but help me to be self-aware in a conversation that I'm having with others. Do you need me to say something? Are you directing me to say something? Are you directing me to withhold? There's, there's some conversations with people where you, wanna, you can see what's going on and you can see clearly, and the Lord wants you to go in with his word, with discernment, with correction, with love, and have that conversation. And there's other people where... They're not going to listen. Don't take what is holy. Don't take his word. Don't take your words. Don't take him and cast it into somebody else's life, the seeds of truth. When they're not going to listen, they're just going to come back and they're going to rip at you and tear at you and condemn you and persecute you. How do you know what the right thing to do is? We don't. Demands us to have faith and trust in God in the Holy Spirit, in our life, directing us which conversations to have and which conversations to avoid. In those conversations, seeking this whole idea of, Lord, I am running to you as your child in humility. I'm running to you, Lord, as a human being who has been broken through the sin of this world, through the sin that we've inherited from Adam, through the sin of my own decisions, Lord, I know that I don't have a stone to stand on over somebody else and condemn their life, their decisions, their behaviors. I know that you came into this world and not to condemn the world because the world's already condemned and under judgment. That's what death points to, uh, teaches us. You came to save you came to seek, you came to search out, you came to find, you came to offer yourself, you came to love, you came to teach, you came and you astonished us. You came to correct us through teachings like this. So worship team, come on up. And that's, uh, let's, let's turn to prayer. Lord, this is just uh, what I've just been saying. It's just, it's a continuation of my conversation that I'm, I'm speaking to you. You've intervened into my life and continue to intervene in my life, Lord, to keep me gentle. There's a lot of things that I can read in the news and 
There's a, there's a part of my flesh that wants to in, instantly lash out and be hypercritical. And then there's a part of me, Lord, that just wants your gospel to be shouted from the mountaintops into every sphere in our culture. Lord, there's part of me that wants to put every single human being in a headlock and force them to submit to you. And we know that that doesn't work. But Lord, we, we trust you. I've had many moments in my life where you have been faithfully, uh, you have faithfully handled my soul, my mind, my behavior. You faithfully corrected me. You faithfully changed and transformed me. You're awesome. Lord, we beg for discernment. There's a, there's a lot of injustice and unrighteousness in your church. There is a lot of false teaching. There are a lot of just things that are off. We know it, we can see it, we can smell it, we can taste it. Help us to be wise when you call us into those gaps, whether it's concerning another ministry that we need to, to warn people about that teaching, whether it's concerning an individual whether it's even just the health, biblical, spiritual health within our gathering here, Lord. Give us the right words. Give us the right discernment. Give us the right heart. Give us your beautiful righteousness. We're going to turn to you, Lord, and we're going to worship you. In our minds, with these lyrics, let them not just be words on a wall, Lord. But give to us understanding as we pour forth our praise. As we take these elements of communion, to fellowship, to commune, to participate in your death and your life. Give us the power, Lord, to humbly be filled with gratitude to boldly stand in this, in this covenant relationship with you, to be overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy, Lord, and to be empowered with your zeal and your tenacity. Keep us balanced. We love you tremendously, Lord, and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.